Hi everyone, my name is Anastasia Lopatina and you're listening to This Week in Ukraine, a video podcast from the Kyiv Independent. Every week I sit down with one of my newsroom colleagues to dive into Ukraine's most pressing issues. And today we're talking about Ukraine's decommunization policies. I'm joined by the Kyiv Independent culture reporter Kate Surkan. Kate, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> So, Kate, uh, we wanted to talk to you about decommunization this week uh, because of some pretty big news. So the USSR symbols, the hammer and the sickle, uh, that used to be on the iconic motherland monument in Kyiv, were recently removed, finally. Uh, many people in Ukraine have been advocating for this. Um, so they've been removed and uh, they will soon be replaced with the independent Ukraine's national symbol, the trident, or as we call it, the trezup. And this came as a part of Ukraine's decommunization policy. Uh, so we wanted to dive into what it actually is. Um, so what exactly is this national policy that we have in Ukraine and why do we even have it in the first place? Yeah, decommunization is a really important uh, process that has been going uh, ongoing since Ukraine regained its independence in the 90s, uh, but it didn't really pick up steam until after the Revolution of Dignity in 2014, uh, which was also soon followed by the illegal Russian annexation of Crimea and mm -hmm. the invasion of Donbass. And uh, basically, it is the process of untangling uh, Soviet influence in every sphere of uh, everyday life. So when it comes to uh, holidays, street names, uh, monuments, all these sort of things. And the uh, importance of this is because, uh, as we see, especially since the full-scale invasion, Russia has been uh, weaponizing history. So this uh, victory against the Nazis in World War II, they have perverted it by saying that uh, now, uh, as they are uh, fighting in Ukraine, that they are denazifying Ukraine, despite the fact that Ukrainians also played a huge role uh, in the Soviet Union to defeat Nazi Germany. Germany and uh, it is not a Nazi country. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, um, there were efforts uh, as early as 2002 to push these uh, laws through the Verkhovna Rada. But they really gained uh, traction under former president mm -hmm. Petro Poroshenko. Uh, it was in 2015 that these major uh, decommunization laws were uh, pushed through. So basically, it's this post-revolutionary initiative that we had after the Revolution of Dignity to get rid of Ukraine's Soviet legacies, Soviet past, Soviet propaganda that we still had in all spheres of our life. But walk us through these laws. Like, what, what does this package actually say? How do they work in practice? Sure. Uh, so there's like, uh, as you said, a package of laws. They include a, a law against uh, propagating Soviet or, and Nazi symbols. Uh, so when it comes to Soviet symbols, it's the hammer and sickle. Uh, there's uh, basically you cannot glorify them or uh, mm -hmm. propagate them in the public sphere. There's also a push to honor Ukrainian resistance fighters of the 20th century, specifically uh, remembrance of the uh, victory over Nazism and and also access to archives of the Soviet secret police. And basically, uh, how we carry out these laws in like the everyday sphere of public life, it comes to um, taking down certain monuments, changing street names, um, mm -hmm. changing some public holidays. 
for example, Russia uh, and a lot of other former Soviet countries, including Ukraine, celebrated the defeat of Nazism on May uh, 9th, not May 8th, like Europe does. So recently, Zelensky signed into law uh, that uh, Ukraine from now on will commemorate the defeat of Nazism on May 8th with the with Europe. And also when it comes to certain Soviet holidays, like Defender of the Fatherland Day, uh, basically it's just celebration of the Red Army. It's on February 23rd. It was uh, abolished as a public holiday during uh, Poroshenko's presidency. And I think it was replaced with some uh, religious holiday. So uh, we see we see a lot of that as well. I mean, there are some obvious choices when it comes to changing street names or taking down monuments. Like when it comes to someone like uh, Felix Terzinski, who was uh, part of the Soviet secret police that was involved in mass killings and detentions. Mm-hmm. Uh, like There's no reason for someone like that to stay. But uh, a lot of the city name changes were returning the names to what they were before the Soviet times. So okay. uh, Bakhmut, the now world famous city, unfortunately uh, known for its destruction during the full-scale invasion, it was mm-hmm. known uh, during the Soviet times as Artemivsk or Art- mm-hmm. Artemovsk as the Russians mm-hmm. called it. But uh, before that, it was Bakhmut. So Ukrainians changed it back in 2016. And uh, uh, there's also the my favorite example, uh, New York. It's a very small town in Donetsk Oblast, and it was uh, the origin of the city name is not entirely clear, but it dates back to like the mid 19th century, uh, mm-hmm. and it was known during Soviet times as Novorotsky. So I'm really happy that it changed back to New York. It's quite cool. Um, mm-hmm. And um, basically, there's um, a lot of street names uh, that were changed. So when it comes to um, you know like heroes of the Red Army, it was easy to change mm-hmm. it to like heroes of the So basically, our local governments began kind of looking at street names and city names and seeing which of those names were created and imposed on Ukraine during Soviet times. And uh, also just to explain a little bit further, as far as I understand, these are not like random Soviet names that they chose because they're pretty words or something. Those Mm -hmm. are the words that in themselves glorify a certain person. It's kind of like there was a Leningrad in Russia, right? So there is a very specific reason why it was called Leningrad, right? It's the city of Lenin. So it's something similar was happening in Ukraine as well, as far as I understand, with city names, with uh, street names. And Ukraine began trying to get rid of those, right? Because we no longer need to glorify those Mm -hmm. Red Army officials, etc. Absolutely. I mean, also, uh, I should, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that one of the first things to go were the Lenin statues all over the country. Mm-hmm. So what you see now with uh, Pushkin happening in a lot of cities, uh, it, it happened mm-hmm. all across Ukraine with Lenin. And uh, you had a lot of streets named after uh, Soviet army officials. So uh, there were uh, both statues and streets named after or uh, commemorating Nikolai Vatutin, who was a famous uh, military officer in the Red Army. But Ukrainian historians say that he had a role to play in uh, trying to uh, stop Ukrainian independence movements. So, I mean, there's absolutely no reason for him to have a street uh, or a statue in Ukraine if he was involved Mm -hmm. with trying to stop Ukrainian independence. I think a natural question that many people will have uh, when they hear an explanation of these laws is, do they target your personal opinions? Like, for example, if, I I don't know, let's imagine some 20-year-old Marxist who goes on Instagram and writes a post glorifying the Soviet Union, uh, pretty common uh, in the West, (laughs) you know? Um, So would that be, I don't know, problematic, illegal? Would 
Ukraine state security services come knocking on the door. Like, is it, does it work that way? Uh, look, if some teenager writes a post about how he's nostalgic watching, you know, Soviet films and you know, looking at the mm-hmm. imagery and like, why did we leave this behind? Uh, mm-hmm. He's not like, as Beu is not going to come knocking on his door the next day. He'll mm-hmm. probably get mm-hmm. ridiculed and made fun of. Uh, but of it's, it's not like, uh, you know, he will be arrested. It, it doesn't work like that. A good example of why these laws are important uh uh, is uh, when it comes to political parties. So after uh, Ukraine regained its independence, we actually had a communist party in Ukraine. And uh, mm-hmm. the head of this communist party, he actually uh, was against calling Holodomor a genocide. He uh, had a lot of very pro-Russian views and uh, he tried to run for president. Unsurprisingly. Yeah, unsurprisingly. He tried to run for president after Maidan, but because of decommunization laws, he couldn't do that, obviously. And according to Ukrainian intelligence, at the start of the full-scale invasion, he was uh, uh, escorted out of the country uh, from Kyiv Oblast to Belarus by Russian forces. And since then, he has been, uh, you know, spreading the word about the so-called proxy war between United States and uh, Russia in Ukraine and mm-hmm. trying to uh, basically paint it as anything other than a genocidal war of annihilation. So there is a reason that such parties were inhibited because Russia has has weaponized it so clearly and people are so uh, eager to to play into that. And these laws also allow, I guess, for personal initiatives. Like, for example, I know one person, one man who what he does is he goes around small cities in Donbass uh, for his own personal work. And every time he sees, for example, something that was common before decommunization is having like portraits of Lenin or little statues or busts of Lenin on uh, school buildings or in parks. And uh, I mean, of course, in little villages, like not many people. People are going to really stick to the law and like make an inventory of every single USSR symbol they have. So what he would do is he would um, send like an official kind of individual call to the local government being like, hey, you guys should get rid of this because this is illegal. And and these laws allowed for this kind of initiative, you know, from from activists, from people who truly care about getting rid rid of those things, even if the government is a bit slow with doing it. So I guess that's another that's another way how that plays out. Absolutely. There's really a, a huge grassroots initiative. I mean, it's that's that's post-Maidan Ukraine. Uh, and there's a lot of like petitions to change certain names. And uh, what I want to point out is that a lot of these statues are not destroyed. I mean, there's a huge debate on what to do with them. One friend of mine who is a historian joked that they should have like a like kind of safari park of Lenin statues <laughs> that you can walk mm-hmm. through. Uh, but we see like in the occupied territories, uh, Russian officials, uh, Russian occupation forces found like the Lenin statues that were locked away in storage and tried to put it back. Uh, so Ukraine is not uh, destroying history. It's trying to like reclaim this history. And it's uh, very important that people are involved with it at all levels because the government can only do so much. Right. So you already mentioned something that I wanted to go into. Uh, so these laws, as as great as they may sound to an average Ukrainian, they also are um, a bit controversial, especially in some academic circles. So you just said um, that, you know, your friend suggests that we shouldn't destroy these statues, that they should be placed in a park somewhere or in a museum. And I know that this is also not you know, a, a debate that only happens in Ukraine. I think this kind of reclaiming history and rethinking history debate is happening all over Europe, in the US and Canada. Um, so maybe let's dive in into some of these controversies. Like what have been some of the criticisms in regards with these laws? 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, some Ukrainian historians have said that uh, it's a bit too extreme, that uh, it's happening too quickly. Uh, mm-hmm. There's not enough deliberation that historians are not being consulted in this project. Mm-hmm. Uh, even some journalists have reported on how politicians are using these decommunization laws as early as 2015 to avoid talking about corruption scandals, uh, which <laughs> is a really important. And uh, like uh, some very respected historians like Yaroslav Hritz said that redefining our approach to Ukraine Soviet history it's uh it's important on the one hand but it's not going to you know fix the economy it's not going to erase corruption so mm-hmm. uh there needs to be really a more uh organized and systematic approach to it and uh yeah, there's even some uh historians who believe that there's parts of the Soviet history that we should uh, hang on to so i mean there's there's a lot of debate going on around this and this is actually um, like why certain monuments like the Motherland Monument or the Red Army Soldier or monuments to the Red Army Soldier were around uh, in Ukraine for so long. I mean, part of these packages were the remembrance of the defeat over Nazism. And uh, the Motherland Monument is a World War II monument. Uh, and uh, in many cities in Ukraine, up until the full-scale invasion, there were statues to the Red Army Soldier. And people, uh, even the most patriotic Ukrainians who don't like Russia, who don't speak Russian, uh, like they would say, like, this is part of our shared history. And, you know, our grandparents or great grandparents fought in World right. War Two, So we need to keep it. But yeah, again, the fact that Russia has weaponized that history has forced people to kind of reassess that. So basically, one of the main critiques of these laws is that uh, there is just not enough debate going on, because as far as I understand, these laws were passed quite quickly without much kind of like social uh, deliberation on whether the country really needs them or what shape or form they should be taking. Um, it, again, it was this kind of like post-revolutionary chaos, which led to a lot of really amazing policies, um, you know, and, and, and institutions being created. But it also sometimes missed the nuances. And I think these laws are kind of an example of that. Um, but another question that I have is, is Ukraine unique in this regard? Like, are there other countries from post-Soviet space or other countries, I don't know, just completely in, in different parts of the world that have something similar, like decommunization policies on a national level? Absolutely. We can see uh, in the Baltic countries, in Poland, Czech Republic, uh, lots of former communist countries, there is uh, a push towards decommunization. And uh, the Baltic countries and Poland are some great examples uh, when it comes to the comprehensiveness of these laws uh, right up there like with what is happening in Ukraine. Uh, what is really interesting, though, in a lot of these countries, there's been this uh, what's called lustration policies. And it's been uh, it's been quite controversial. Uh, Václav Havel, the former president of Czech Republic, for example, uh, warned against like this uh, need for revenge or retribution uh, because uh, basically lustration was the opportunity for people to come forward and confess that they had collaborated with the secret police. This was meant to uh, like weed out any people from uh, high level positions uh, in public office if they had been really uh, Mm -hmm. deeply involved with communist police. So Poland, uh, certain people were required if they were born uh, in a certain year, and especially if they were like in law or journalism or some other important profession, they uh, had the opportunity to come forward and say whether they had uh, been involved with this. Uh, Some people have uh, like 
pushed for opening the uh, police archives. But the problem here is that uh, some critics argue that you see uh, like these really low level people, they didn't really commit any serious crimes, uh, but their name, like their whole reputation can be tarnished from being in these uh, police archives. And you don't have the names mm -hmm, of high level mm -hmm. officials necessarily. And these are the people that you really want to punish. So uh, lustration laws in, in Poland, uh, Czech Republic and other former communist countries have kind of been rolled back uh, because of their controversial nature. But you see, uh, of course, in these countries, a lot of Soviet monuments were removed, streets were renamed. So it's, it's yeah, it's, it's going on everywhere. You have to uh, also consider that a lot in, in a lot of these countries, Ukraine included, that um, Soviet authorities deemed certain officials uh, undesirable and they were uh, attempting to erase them from history. So there's a lot of like um, uh, Ukrainian writers whose works were burned uh, by the Soviets and people are only discovering them now or only like some Russian translation exists of their work because they were uh, their image was like recuperated by the Soviets. So basically that means it was like uh, polished according to the socialist realism, uh, which was doctrine at that time when it comes to the arts and basically like removed a lot of the nuances in some of their work. And I mean, yeah, like this, this uh, reclaiming of lost history is, is a huge push in all of these countries, not just Ukraine, to get rid of these communist symbols and names everywhere. I'm wondering then, did Russia's full-scale invasion have an effect on how fast or how slow or how comprehensive um, these decommunization policies are being implemented. I wonder if there is kind of like a similar acceleration like we saw uh, after the Euromaidan in 2014. Absolutely. And it's really, uh, I'll give you a really interesting example from Chernivtsi, where I live. In 2018, there was a local uh, writer who was pushing uh, for the Red Army statue to get removed. It was in the city center on Seborna Plosha, which is not even called Seborna Plosha anymore. And um, there is uh, there was also a, a tank uh, near the train station. And a lot of people got really angry with this person. And they said, uh, this uh, has nothing to do with Russia. This is our shared history. Uh, what did your grandparents do during World War II? And like even then some of the more like um, uh, antagonistic uh, news platform basically mocked this person for a few days. As soon as the full-scale invasion started, there was a push to uh, remove these monuments and uh, the tank disappeared very quickly. But because the Red Army statue uh, for some reason had some like special cultural historical designation, they had to appeal to Verkhovna Rada officials to have it removed. Uh, and in other parts of Chernivtsi Oblast, Red Army statues were removed, but they were, as I said uh, earlier, placed in storage. They're not destroyed. But actually, uh, the square will be named uh, Vishavanka Day Square because this holiday, Vishavanka Day, was started in Chernivtsi. And uh, Volodymyr Ivasyuk, there will be a statue for him. Uh, he's a famous musician, also from Chernivtsi Oblast, uh, part of this uh, famous Chervona Ruta song. He was a composer uh, who died under very suspicious circumstances in Lviv. They found him hanged uh, in a forest. So some people suspect that Soviets um, murdered him and made it look like a suicide. But uh, there's going to be like a, a competition. So local artists will submit their ideas for a statue and uh, they're really interested in getting the community involved. So that's really nice that. Uh, and it's a great example of how like local Ukrainian history will be used to replace this Red Army statue.
We're now going to be moving to the questions that we got from our community members. But before we do that, um, I want to take a moment to remind you guys that The Come Independent released its first ever documentary film. It's called Uprooted. It is a documentary that was created by journalists from Come Independent War Crimes Investigations Unit. And the movie dives into the kidnapping of Ukrainian children by Russia. And specifically, it looks at several families who were separated, uh, families from Mariupol, children from Mariupol, who were illegally deported uh, to Russia or Russia-occupied territories. Uh, the movie is already available on YouTube. Uh, you should check it out. Um, and I also want to now take a moment uh, to remind you that we now have our very own community membership system. So you can support the Kevin Dependent directly just by going on our website at kevindependent.com slash membership. And there are many tiers. You can support us for as little as $5 a month. And uh, there's also an option for a one-time donation. And and uh, for those of you who do become members of our community, you get really cool perks like um, discussions with editors and Zoom calls. And you also get access to a Discord server with the entire community and the journalists. Us. So um, it's really cool. And you help us keep going and do our work as best as we can. So now to the questions. So the first question that we got is basically our cities putting it to a vote by the citizens uh, when they change their names when they rename streets or city names, are citizens allowed to come up with new names or are they allowed to debate and deliberate on it? Because the community member is saying that he's heard that uh, the citizens are only basically given a, a finished list of potential names and they don't have a right to engage in this discussion. So tell us a bit more about how that process happens when you rename a city. I think when it comes to city names, it's a bit more... Uh bureaucratic, let's say. As I said earlier, a lot of cities were uh, given the names that they had before the Soviet times, but there is the unique situation where some cities were founded during the Soviet Union. Uh, there was, for example, a coal mining town in Poltava Oblast called Komsomols, named after the Komsomol, this youth organization uh, during the USSR for young communists. And uh, basically, it, the name was changed to Horishni Plavni, and um, a lot of locals apparently hated this name. They thought it sounded like very provincial, almost like a village, and local officials mm -hmm. wanted to appeal it. But uh, it's it's called Horishni Plavni still, so I guess they failed in that respect. <laughs> but when it comes to like uh, street names, there's always, uh, like I said, it's a grassroots nation. Uh, there's always petitions. And in Chernivtsi, I have a great example. So we have this uh, street, uh, Komarova Street in, in Chernivtsi. I assume it's named after Vladimir Komarov, a famous pilot from the USSR. And... Uh, um, there was a petition to name it, uh, rename it. Uh, he was a local poet from Chernivtsi who fought uh, in the anti-terrorist operation uh, from 2014-2015 and uh, he died in the Battle of Azovstal. And actually only recently was his body able to be recovered and brought back to Chernivtsi for burial. So uh, he lived uh, apparently on this Komarova street and people started a, p a petition uh, to have it named after him. So instead of Komarova street, it will be called Vulitsa uh, Sklada. And uh, it got passed in the local city parliament. And uh, yeah, it's just a matter of time of, of that name being changed. 
to add an extra layer to your answer as well, um, I mean, this process of renaming streets or cities, it's not in, in something like inherently undemocratic because it's done by lawmakers who were elected. When we do have some sort of scandalous decisions and everybody just hates it, people go, especially in smaller cities where that's kind of easier and where people's deputies are more accessible than in like Kyiv or something. Um, in the suburbs where I live, uh, people can go uh, you know, to the office of the city council. They can call the, the mayor or attend appeals and uh, often they listen and there starts a debate so it's kind of a it, it, it's not like an open city hall forum discussion every time it happens but if people are unhappy uh, and they act on it they try to listen i think another question that we got is also really interesting the community member is wondering is there anything from soviet times that ukrainians actually might want to hold on to and not destroy not remove but actually preserve what do you think Yeah, of course. I mean, we have our radicals who want to burn it all down, but that exists in every society. That's totally normal. Mm -hmm. uh, but when it comes to like architecture, for example, a lot of people want to protect these uh, uh, modernist style buildings. They're quite um, uh, striking and uh, some are beautiful in their own way. And um, basically like they're uh, sometimes just going to be replaced by ugly, cheaply made high rise buildings. Uh, so there's, there's a reason to protect them uh, because they're a bit more sturdy when it comes to structure. And also many of those buildings were created by Ukrainian architects. So, uh, yeah. I mean, they worked within the Soviet Union times, but what can you do about it? Yeah. Well, Kate, thank you so much. It was really interesting to listen to you. Thanks for having me. Also this week, a Russian drone strike damaged Ukraine's Danube River port, causing substantial damage to grain warehouses and other infrastructure, the government reported on August 2nd. On that same day, August 2nd, Ukraine's president Volodymyr Zelensky said that the F-16 training for Ukrainian pilots is set to begin this month. And Yuri Belousov, the head of the war crimes department at Ukraine's prosecutor general's office, said that his team recorded 98,000 war crimes that were committed by Russian forces in Ukraine. You can find our show on YouTube and all audio platforms every Friday morning. If you like this episode, please subscribe to us and like our content wherever you're listening to this podcast. Please make sure to support us and become a member of our community by going to coindependent.com membership. And also check out our multimedia project, Ukraine's True History, which is a series of YouTube videos and articles aimed at debunking Russian myths and distortions of Ukrainian history. Also follow us on social media at Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.